White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 446. On Sunday, February 6th, 1983, ABC will begin a landmark in television entertainment. For an entire week, the winds of war will dominate the primetime schedule. Herman Woke's best-selling novel becomes a 16-hour motion picture with 438 locations around the world and a star-studded cast. The Winds of War is the most ambitious, most monumental, the finest television program ever made. War in Europe! Hitler remains Poland! I am Germany. It's a bad thing to go to war. A very bad thing. Take me away from here, please. Defend our island. We shall never surrender. December 7th, 1941. A date which will live in infamy. An epic television event with all original footage from the war rooms and battlegrounds of Berlin, London, Rome, Washington, Warsaw, Moscow, and Pearl Harbor. Starring Ralph Bellamy, Victoria Tennant, Jeremy Kemp, Peter Graves, Polly Bergen, John Houseman, Jan Michael Vincent, Ali McGraw, and Robert Mitchum. The motion picture that will captivate generations. This is the winds of war. Ten, nine, eight, seven, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition, two, one, zero, we have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. The second five is moving off the pad. It is now clear to the tower. Welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment, along with all of our great friends and supporters via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and in this episode, I'm going solo. I like to do topics that I'm passionate about, things that I'm interested in in a moment. I think that always comes across more interesting for the listener if it's something you're presently interested in and can speak passionately about in the moment. And so I want to go ahead and get my thoughts down now while they're fresh. Uh, there's there's lots to be said for conversations with, with multiple people too, you know, because you bring things out of each other's minds that you might not have thought of by yourself. If there's one thing I've learned over the years of doing this show, it's that a good mixture of enthusiasm and multiple points of view, those two things together make for a good show. Well, I'm, I guess my multiple points of view for my solo part here today will be how I saw this originally a few years ago when I watched it, and then how I saw it watching it again over the, over the holidays of the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, plus reading most of the two books during that time. This is The Winds of War and War in Remembrance, Herman Woke's two gigantic novels about the lead-up to World War II and World War II itself, and the two ABC television miniseries that were humongous that were created based on those books. I watched more or less The Winds of War when it first aired in 1983. I can remember it being on. It was at sort of the, not exactly the tail end, but it was close to the tail end of that great television miniseries era that ran through the 70s and into the 80s. You know, it, it that whole time period gave us things like Rich Man, Poor Man, Roots, Masada, Shogun, Noble House. And right in the middle of all that, in 1983, came 
the winds of war. And then five years later, in 1988 and then in 1989, for the second half of it, more or less, they, the war in remembrance, it was so big, they split it over two years. And I'll talk in a minute about why they did that. But it came along with um, some of the same cast and some different. And I'm going to be talking about the books and the miniseries both kind of interchangeably here, but I'll try to make clear which ones I'm talking about. And by the way, also, I apologize. The quality of my voice is not great. I've had the flu for the last uh, week or so, but I did, again, want to get this down while it's fresh in my mind and while I have thoughts that I want to get out about it. So the TV miniseries came along in 83 and then uh, of Winds of War and then War and Remembrance in 88, 89, based on these two mammoth novels by Herman Woke, who famously wrote The Cane Mutiny and among other great works. These were really his big monuments to World War II from a variety of perspectives. And then Dan Curtis, the television producer, uh, created these two miniseries based on the two books. Um, before I get into the, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about what they are. For, if you don't know, uh, give some details, some refresher, my own personal uh, experience with them, and then I want to just analyze them a little bit. And that's pretty much what I have to say about them today. Uh, my own personal experience with them, like I said, I, I watched The Winds of War in '83 on and off. I remember it was, you know, I was a teenager and wasn't paying that much attention to it other than as a World War II thing. And at the time, I think I realized it was only going to lead up to World War II, so I wasn't, you know, as excited about it. At the time, I didn't understand. Being a history professor now, I understand that the build-up to a war is often the much more interesting part. Uh, the war itself is just sort of the denouement of, of what all has led to it happening, you know. But when I was, you know, just a, when I was a teenager, I didn't fully grasp that. So I wanted to see the war. Uh, by the time uh, War and Remembrance, which actually covers the course of the war, when it came along, though, I was off in college and not really watching a lot of long-term television. So I didn't watch but just bits and fragments of it uh, in 88, 89. So what happened was about 20 years ago, around 2000, 2001, somewhere in there, I was able to secure the VHS box sets of both series, and probably from eBay or something. And I watched the whole thing all the way through over a period of weeks. And I remember thinking on the one hand, it was an incredibly impressive thing. But on the other hand... I remember thinking that long stretches of it were rather dour and dark and um, depressing, but of course it was realistic, and that's a big part of it. So The Winds of War was a tremendous success in the ratings. It did great, and it is what prompted ABC to decide to spend like hundreds of millions of dollars to make War and Remembrance a few years later. But War and Remembrance is considered the miniseries that killed the miniseries because its ratings were good. It won every you know night it was on. It did very well. It, it was kind of like the Battlestar Galactica of miniseries. It won. It did well. It just had to be utterly dominant to justify the money they had spent on it. ABC had a thing for that back then, didn't they? Same thing with Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica did great in the ratings. It was a top five show for the entire year. And yet, because it wasn't number one, the amount of money it cost to make did not justify continuing it. That's why it got, I always tell people, Battlestar Galactica did not get canceled for bad ratings. Battlestar, let me put it this way, Battlestar Galactica did not get canceled for a lack of ratings. It got canceled for a lack of great ratings. It had to be number one. And it was the same thing with War and Remembrance. They needed it to dominate, and it was just great and good in the ratings. It wasn't dominant, and so... Um, it, it marked the end of, um, of miniseries getting this much money and running this long and all that. They started dialing, you know, series back after this. One, and they, you know, there's a lot of reasons given, including that cable TV had gotten more prevalent by then. You had a lot more choices. You know, when the original great monumental miniseries is like Roots and, and Masada and Shogun ran, there really wasn't a lot of competition. There weren't other places you could go to find something else to watch. Whereas by 1988-89, you had other options, you know. But I'm going to suggest this, too, why, war, why Winds of War had better ratings than War and Remembrance. When you watched Winds of War, which is set in 39, 40, 41, 
as the world is getting pulled into the war, but the United States, Pearl Harbor hasn't happened until almost the ending. Um, and then I'll talk about the books too. But in the Winds of War, when it aired, what it showed was happy people that were still not swept up in the horrors of war yet. They could see it coming, and it's lurking like a hurricane over the horizon, right? So you know the war is coming. We all, with with hindsight, know what's coming, but the characters in it are much more positive. They don't know that. And so, you know, like, for example, the Allie McGraw character, who is Jane Seymour in the second series, she's very sassy. She's very American, very bouncy, you know. Um, it, every uh, Dr. Jastro uh, is is uh, the character that John Gilgood plays in the second series. He is uh, a very positive figure, you know. It, everything is bright and colorful and happy, and you know you you contrast that with War and Remembrance. Now, I want to make this extremely clear up front. War and Remembrance is is incredibly accurate, and I'm not faulting it for that. I'm, I, it, of course it shows the Holocaust the way it was, we all assume, right? And of course it needed to if that was its goal. That's fine. But what I'm saying is because it did that, it's much more grim, right? When you watch War and Remembrance, you get like a 20-minute segment of Byron on his submarine shooting Japanese destroyers, and it's like, oh, cool, exciting, you know, World War II action movie. And then after 20 minutes of that, you get like 45 minutes or an hour of the Jews in the ghettos being just abused and tortured by the Nazis, who were just these absolute monsters, as they obviously were. And again, I'm, I'm not saying that's not how it was, and I'm not saying they don't do a fantastic job of portraying it. I'm just saying if you're wondering why the ratings weren't what they were for the first series, it's not exactly feel-good theater, you know? I mean, sitting there for two and a half, three hours on a, on a weeknight or a Sunday night watching the Jews being tortured by horrible Nazi monsters, is it may be historically accurate. It is. Yeah. But it's not a feel-good time of home entertainment, you know? <laughs> it's like uh, having your fingers smashed by a hammer. And so um, it's it doesn't surprise me that the ratings for the second one were not as good because the subjects it has to portray are not fun, happy subjects. They're not exciting. Like I said, for every 20 minutes of submarine combat or the Battle of Midway that you get, you get an hour of the Jews being... Uh, and just absolutely, you know, treated so abominably and unthinkably in the prison camps and Auschwitz and at uh, uh, Theresienstadt and everything. And so I just, it doesn't surprise me the ratings weren't what they could have been because of the subject matter it has to cover by necessity makes it a much darker um, program. And so that's just how it is. Um I want to talk about, uh, let's see, I mentioned uh, Herman Woke, Herman Woke, the writer, Dan Curtis. Oh, yeah, and I, while we're talking about the TV miniseries and the structure of it and everything, it was spread across two years. That didn't help the ratings either because uh, instead of airing you know, straight through so people could just watch it in one what we would today call binge-watching, instead they sh- there were 12 episodes. And some of those episodes with commercials were three hours long, not all of them, but some of them. So it was a long thing. Okay, that's another reason that they're, you know you you could, you could only ask so much of viewers and ask them to watch twelve episodes of two to three hours long, night after night is a big ask. Um, but it didn't help that they after the seventh episode aired in in eighty eight in the fall of eighty eight they broke it off and waited five or six months and aired the sec aired episodes seven through twelve in nineteen eighty in the spring of eighty nine. There were a number of reasons, including trying to hit the sweeps weeks in the ratings and also the writer's strike. There was a writer's strike going on in Hollywood, and they, they needed to go ahead and air it what they had early while they were still editing and producing the second half of the series. And so um, they were kind of stuck. They couldn't go back and change anything in the beginning because they already had aired it. You know, it's like when Harlan Ellison would write a story and he'd tape the pages as he finished them to the wall of the, to the glass wall of the, of the, uh, coffee shop or whatever, he couldn't go back and change it later. You, you, there's no revising. You've already aired it. So um, that's why it, it didn't do great in the ratings. Um, 
But let's talk about the actual uh, book and books and 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 the miniseries. What uh, the structure? They um, they're presented in in interesting in ways. It's um it's uh this story tries to be three completely separate things. I think at the same time, there's a romance action story of American naval personnel fighting in World War II, and in the periphery, including the diplomacy, because. You know, Victor Henry Pug Henry. He's a he's a commander, a captain, an admiral. He um, he spends part of the time commanding ships, and he spends part of the time uh, serving as like a diplomatic aide or attaché for President Roosevelt and President Truman in places like Moscow and Berlin. Um, but uh, it, which is cool. That structure, that part of it is cool because it allows characters like him to encounter great historical figures. I mean, he, he sits down at different times with Stalin, with Hitler. Uh, it's quite remarkable. I think that's one of its best accomplishments is that it gives you a very personal insight into these great figures, Churchill, FDR, Truman, and so on. Uh, the second thing it tries to be is a World War II documentary with actual, like in the video, you get actual black and white footage of the war with a voiceover narrator, like interrupting the uh, the soap opera with um, with uh, newsreel footage. In the book, the way they do that, way that Herman Woke does that, is by having uh, segments where Victor Henry is allegedly translating a German general's account of the war, Armin van Roon, who was a fictional general that Woke made up. But he's, he's translating it and offering his commentary, which is interesting because you get the German general's uh, view of the war and an American naval commander's view of the war kind of side by side with commenting on each other and all that, which is cool. So it tries to do that, which is a completely separate thing. And then the third thing is also completely separate, which is an almost moment by moment, an extremely harrowing look, as I said, at what a, what a Jewish family, the Jastros, experienced from beginning to end going through the Holocaust. Um, and I may get into a few spoilers before we're done, and particularly involving uh, some of the main characters with that. So be, be warned if you haven't watched or read it and are interested. I'll let you know before I get into that. Now, I think that the novels pull the trick off more effectively than the TV miniseries of what I was just talking about, about the structure. Because in the novels, Woke really is able to blend those things smoothly together. Right? In other words, you know, he, he'll have Victor Henry... Uh, reading a letter that gives some news of what's going on, and then he'll go out and actually participate in some event, and then he'll talk about what Von Roon, the general, says about it, and it all kind of smoothly flows one into another. With the miniseries, even being as long as those two series are, it's still much more broken into pieces where the transitions are harsher. And so, you know, you go from like the soap opera, oh, Victor's wife is cheating on him, to a newsreel footage of the Battle of Stalingrad, to uh, people in the Nazi death camps. It's just a very jarring transition sometimes, the way that it goes from one to another. But I think the miniseries, because it didn't have that option available to smoothly, to take the time to smoothly intercut, I think it does the best it can with it, and it's, and it's fine. Let's talk a little bit about the characters. As I said, the main character is Victor Henry, called Pug, who rises up through the ranks. Um, he's in his 50s, I believe, at the beginning. He's played by, in the miniseries, in both of them, by Robert Mitchum, who's way too old for the part. And that only matters, really, in the case of, uh, I mean, his age doesn't matter except for one thing, and that's that part of the story, a big part of his story, is his affair with Pamela Tudsbury, the daughter of a British journalist, and, you know, she's played by a young Victoria Tennant, who was a much younger actress. And so she would later be Steve Martin's wife, of all things. And um, their age difference is very vivid. I mean, it, he needed to be the age he is in the books for that to work better. It just seems odd. The, the, the book makes it clearer, but in the miniseries, it just doesn't work for me. That, that I, I, think that, I think that he does a great job playing the character in every other way. It's just the romance part for me falls flat. The, the two characters that changed actors, well, there's three. Let me back up. The three characters, the three important characters that were all recast between the first miniseries and the second are, the, the, the I think, the next three most important after, after Pug. And that's his, his younger son, Byron Henry, Byron's girlfriend slash wife, Natalie Jastrow, and Natalie's 
uncle, Professor Aaron Jastra. So Byron Henry is starts out played by Jan Michael Vincent. And I don't love his work in The Winds of War. I thought he was miscast. I, I just didn't believe... He, he just he, he doesn't fit the part very well. He seems too old for it. I, it. He's supposed to be a very young, impetuous, excitable young man who's gone off to study art in Europe, is not interested in the military, and Jan Michael Vincent, to me, just that doesn't work at all. Neither does Natalie in the first one. Natalie in the first one is played by Allie McGraw, and she just this utterly falls flat for me in the part. I don't find her... She's supposed to be this raving, alluring beauty and that everybody is just tripping over themselves over and and I just and 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 then the way and it's not just her looks. I don't mean to be, you know, denigrating Allie McGraw is a beautiful woman, but she just seems older and tougher and it, she doesn't in other words, her 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 appearance and she's a lovely woman, but her appearance doesn't match the way they describe the character in the show or the books. And so it's just a mismatch, okay? Nothing against her. It's just a mismatch. And so when they recast both of them in War and Remembrance with, um, with Jane Seymour playing Natalie and with um, Hart Bachner playing... Byron Henry, it's a vast improvement because both of those actors much more embody, in my mind, the two characters than the actors in the first one did. More about that in a minute. And then they recast Professor Jastro in the um, in the first one. He's John Houseman, who's okay, but in the second one he is um, he is John Gilgood, who I think does a much better job has a lot more to work with, too, and does a great job. I was just very impressed with John, John Gilgood, Sir, Sir John Gilgood in, the, uh, in, in War and Remembrance. Um, a few of the other characters, I loved Ralph Bellamy as President Roosevelt. I thought he does a great job as FDR. And you know the, the actor that I thought really um, impressed me tremendously in um, the actor in both miniseries that really impressed me tremendously was... Uh, David Dukes, not David Duke, the Louisiana Klansman, <laughs> David Dukes, the actor who plays Leslie Sloat. Sloat was an interesting character because in, in the winds, and it's the same actor all the way through, and that helped because he was good in both, and that continuity helped. And Sloat is an interesting character because in the first one, he's a, he's a career diplomat who is in love with Natalie, but um, won't marry her because she's Jewish. And by the time you get well into the second, and he's afraid that that would hurt his, in, in that day and age, in the late 30s, early 40s in the United States, he was afraid that would hurt his career in the State Department to be married to a Jew, as, as shocking as something like that is uh, to think about today. Um, but um, but by, the, you know, by midway through the second miniseries, he's the guy that's pushing so hard for the uh, the United, you know, the U.S. government to do something about the Holocaust because he figures out it's going on. He's clued in that it's going on, and he's trying to do something about it. Um, Polly Bergen is Rhoda. She's she has a very unsavory character. I don't really <laughs> like Rhoda very much in this, but she does a great job with her. Uh, she chews the scenery, but she's very entertaining. I adore Victoria Tennant in this. She's just delightful as Pamela Tudgeberry, the uh, the love interest of Pug. In fact, everybody's constantly having affairs in this story. Um, one, um, one clever reviewer I read said that Woke's marriage of soap opera and meticulously researched history in his book is the only marriage that actually survives this story. <laughs> and that's pretty good, right? So, um, um, but, uh, so the other, the other characters I, I liked, um, I want to go through here and just see if there's any other characters I really want to mention. And now you, you get some interesting, um, well, we do have Jeremy Kemp is always great, and he plays a great General Von Roon. Um, one of my favorite actors from Space 1999, um, who played Professor Bergman, uh, shows up in, uh, Barry Morse, of course, shows up in two interesting roles, one in... In, uh, in the Winds of War, he's a German uh, like banker, a wealthy guy, ho hosting parties and uh, trying to get Victor Henry over to the Nazi side, so, so to speak, to, to support them. 
And in War and Remembrance, uh, Barry Moore, same actor, plays a German uh, general or, or top military figure. And uh, and uh, the other um, actor I want to mention, you do get, by the way, you get two different actors playing um, playing Hitler. Gunther Meisner in the first one, who's good but almost cartoonish. But man, talking about chewing the scenery. Now, I know that it's it's got to be hard to play Hitler and not chew the scenery. I mean, is there any individual in history more suited to scenery chewing than than Hitler, for crying out loud, right? But you get Stephen Burkhoff from uh, the great Bond villain from Octopussy. He does a great job. I'm really hard-pressed to say which version of Hitler I like better. And um, my goodness, we get a lot of uh, guest stars throughout it. Brian Blessed, by the way, all you Brian Blessed fans, he has a nice role as a Russian-Soviet commander. But yeah, Jane Seymour comes in and plays Natalie, and she's, of course, she's Jane Seymour. She's fantastic. Topol is in it. He's great. Uh, Hart Bachner, I thought, was fantastic. As uh, I mean, it's really kind of summed up at the end when Hart Bachner as Briny, when he comes up to, to Natalie at the end, and she says, you look like a movie star because he's wearing his white uh, naval dress uniform. He really does. He just is a cuts a very striking figure in this, and much, much more so than Jan Michael Vincent, I thought. All right, so I'm about to get into the actual storylines of The Winds of War and War in Remembrance. But before we do, we have to thank the great folks who enable shows like this to take place that keep our programs on the air across our entire White Rocket Entertainment Network. For as little as a dollar a month, you can join their ranks. Just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net. You will find their links to everything that the White Rocket Entertainment Network does, from books and comic books to podcasts about James Bond, about sports, and all the entertainment shows that we do here on the White Rocket Podcast and all the other things that I'm involved in. And you also will find a great big link that goes to the Patreon page, and you can join it, and there are a number of benefits you get for being a member. But mainly, you know that you're keeping our show going and keeping all of our shows on the network going for the foreseeable future. So for as little as a dollar a month, though we certainly appreciate more, you can be part of the White Rocket family and know that all of us here, and I especially appreciate you very much, our current Supporters include Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burleson, along with Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, Wynn Carroll, Brian Gray, Winston Boddy, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. We also have Clinton and Christopher Stewart, Mickey B., William Morgan, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, A.U. Falling Up, Alchemist Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Johnny Caldwell, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kangian, Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, Hugh Anderson, Blake Heron, Steve Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Canoy, Don Zederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Shane Bailey, Mick Vigicana, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Wynn, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And finally, we have Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrick, Russell Souther, Paul Bankson, Joseph Iliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt, Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, Darren Pyle. We're almost to the end, but we appreciate all you guys. Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph Miller, Mark Squire, Chris, Brent Rumble, plus our great Surfer Chickify and our anonymous and occasional and one-time donors. We appreciate all of you so much. Just go to www.plexico.net to sign up. And now as we get back into the show, by the way, I want to apologize for the quality of my voice and the audio and some of this because this was recorded in the middle of me having pneumonia back in January. And I really wanted to get it recorded but I wasn't at my best, but I'm doing the best I can. So before we get back into it, here is the trailer to War and Remembrance. The wait is over. 
The stage is set. The saga continues. The end of the winds of war was just the beginning of war and remembrance. From Herman Wouk's stirring novel, a massive motion picture achievement to equal the scope of the world's most turbulent era. Gentlemen, I want to bomb Japan. frenzied call to arms that followed the destruction of Pearl Harbor, the Victor Henrys, an American Navy family, braced themselves for the onslaught of war and the inevitable turmoil that is their destiny. It is the Fuhrer's unshakable will to cleanse the continent of Jews. Get out while you can. We're about to fight the biggest battle of the war. for Natalie, wasn't it? Have you ever seen anything more beautiful in your life? Now you got a story to tell Natalie, huh? Mrs. Henry, I realize that neither you nor Professor Jastrow understand just how fraught with peril your situation is. If this war goes on two more years, every Jew in Europe will be dead. Natalie's no journalist. Her, her documents are fraudulent. The documents break down. She's gone. Mrs. Henry, your husband is the most attractive man I've ever met. Are you having an affair with my husband? Torpedoes! Torpedoes off the port bow, bearing 350! From the ravaged islands of the Philippines, Guadalcanal, Midway, Singapore, and Hiroshima. Attack! 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 To the battered streets of Europe, Berlin, Moscow, Stalingrad, London, Paris, and Auschwitz. Even in Auschwitz, it is possible to survive. War and remembrance sweeps back the pages of history, bringing alive the turmoil, the tragedy, the passion, the fury, the glory, and horror of a world at war. I love you, Victor. I'll never change. Ian McShane, John Reese Davies, Chaim Topol, Robert Morley, Jeremy Kemp. Ralph Bellamy, Peter Graves, Barry Bostwick, David Dukes, Michael Woods, Hart Bachner, Victoria Tennant, Polly Bergen, Sir John Gielgud, Jane Seymour, and Robert Mitchum. Tonight, the motion picture event of a lifetime begins. War and Remembrance. All right, so now let's. I'm going to do a little bit of analysis of the actual story, and uh, that'll be pretty much what I have to say, uh, both the book and the uh, miniseries. So if you haven't watched or read either one, this would be a good moment to go ahead and stop. Take my, I'll give you my recommendation now that this is worth your. It's a, it's a big time investment, and you have to be prepared, particularly in War and Remembrance, that you're going to get a lot of a uh, lot of hours of the Holocaust, which is not pretty and you get some pretty graphic stuff before it's over but i think it's worth your time because i think that uh it's done truthfully and it's done well and uh you it's long both the books and the miniseries are long enough that you have plenty of time to come and care about all the characters and what happens to them and it makes all of these big world events much more relatable because you're seeing them through the eyes of characters that you know and that you care about Okay, so there's your spoiler warning, and now, uh, in the last few minutes, I'm going to talk about some specifics. 
Okay, so the main specifics I want to talk about really involve Natalie. That's what really compelled me to want to do this show. I mean, if you just look at this as a World War II miniseries or a couple of miniseries or a couple of World War II novels, that's fine. There's tons of those. But going back and watching this again and then reading most of the books gave me a much greater appreciation for, I think, what's often overlooked, perhaps, about this story. Um, and it's easy to see that it's overlooked. It's the, the twin stories of Aaron Jastrow and Natalie Jastrow Henry. Because before the end of The Winds of War, Byron Henry marries Natalie, and they have a baby, Lewis, little boy. And so in War and Remembrance, it, 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 let me, I have to say this. Watching The Winds of War is so frustrating, particularly when you know what's coming if you've seen it before, right, or if you've read it, because you know that all these opportunities that Natalie has to get out of Europe before Hitler takes over, and she squanders them. And to me, that's what ultimately is the most compelling thread for the whole, of the whole story for me is Natalie's journey, because... She, at the beginning, as I said before, is very bouncy and positive and happy. And above all, she is American. She barely even seems to know or care that she's Jewish. Being Jewish isn't even on her radar, really, in the winds of war. She's an American woman. She's in love with, well, first Sloat, the diplomat, and then with Byron, who eventually is a naval officer, submarine commander. She is an American, all-American woman, and these foreigners better get out of her way. You know, they're not going to mess with her. Oh, it's just silly to think that anybody's going to tell her what to do, and they better get out of her way, right? That's her attitude. That's a very American attitude, particularly Americans abroad, right? She has that Americans abroad attitude, <clears throat> and her, her uncle, for all of his wisdom, isn't much different from that. He's living in a He's living in a villa in Siena, Italy, which is a whole fascinating story into itself about Siena and the, the Contrada and all that, which you see in this and also in Quantum of Solace, the James Bond movie. You get all of that. He's living in a villa in Italy, researching his books. He's a retired Yale professor, very American, and not particularly humongously obsessed with his being Jewish either. And what the story does is, by the fact of their being Jewish, causing them all the things that happen to them the rest of the story, it really brings their their religion, their ethnicity, their you know what makes them Jewish, it brings it to the surface and makes it more important to them rather than less. In other words, it their their backgrounds become more important to them as as their backgrounds are what are causing them to be persecuted. And that I think makes perfect sense. Absolutely perfect sense. So at the beginning of the Winds of War, both Natalie and her uncle are very American, very positive, very happy, very almost arrogant, you know, in their self-assuredness of their place in the world as Americans. As the story goes along, and, and, and this is what I was saying was kind of amusing about it in a dark way, is that in the first miniseries, in the first book, we know what's coming and we just keep wanting them to go home. Just go back to the United States. Just leave while you can. And they are so cocky and so arrogant in their security and safety as Americans that they don't understand that pretty soon the Nazis will have sealed up all the exits and the fact that they are Jewish will matter far more to the Nazis than the fact that they are Americans. And they can't leave. And that's what happens. So they end up trapped in Europe, traveling from place to place to place to place to place, always trying to get out, always being hemmed in by the Nazis, the SS, and various individuals. And ultimately, I'll just go ahead and move to the ending of this then, of, of her story and his. What Dr. Jastrow goes through is horrible, of course, and he ends up being the one who... It's kind of like we have two characters. We have two American Jews, not counting Lewis. They, of course, Lewis gets taken away. He gets spirited away, snuck out of, of Theresienstadt by some Jewish partisans, and he ultimately escapes to Britain. So that's wonderful. The little boy survives to go to Britain and be reunited. Now, it's that leaves us with two adults, right? Natalie and Aaron. And, and it's like Woke wanted to have us one to show us how they died and one to show what could happen if you survived. And so, of course, Aaron goes ultimately to the gas chambers where his status as an elder is still not enough to save him from the last of the final solution, quote-unquote. 
And so the last we see of Aaron is a trickle of dust going out into the river after the uh, incinerators. And that absolutely ha has haunted me. It's one of four or five scenes from the miniseries that stuck with me all those decades. I remembered seeing that because that's just so powerful and just so depressing and horrible. And yet it's so true that six million people experienced that. And we see it through the eyes of one that we've come to love and care about that John Gilgood plays so amazingly. Then there's Natalie. Natalie, of course, started out so cocky and arrogant and American, becomes more, much more Jewish in terms of her focus because it's what's you know keeping them all together against the Nazis, that's their identity. And she ultimately also is taken first to Theresienstadt, the, the Paradise Ghetto, which is, I just don't even wanna go into that name, and ultimately to one of the death camps. And she is not condemned immediately and then put on a train to be taken somewhere else and then when the allies overrun germany or wherever they are the the soldiers find her huddled underneath a train car with riddled with disease and malnutrition and she's taken to paris i believe where she rehab rehabilitates and convalesces now the miniseries makes it bad enough because we see her screamed at abused by the Nazi commandant, played by the wonderful actor who also is in Henry V playing Pistol, Stephen, I can't think of his name. But he's, oh, he's overwhelmingly horrifying as the commandant. All the Nazis, all the Nazis in this are as, are as horrifying as you would expect they would be. From Eichmann and Hitler all the way, you know, all of them, all the way down to the camp commanders. We see her in the miniseries go through horrible, horrible things but not nearly as bad as what we're told in the book she goes through. Um, in the movie, in the miniseries, we learn that she had typhus, because basically typhus broke out in the death camp and they put them all on the trains and so everybody got it and they were all dying. And she didn't even remember how she got out of the train. She was just sitting there on the ground underneath the train car, huddled, huddled up, but, um, which is horrifying. Uh, but she also, we are told, uh, when she was work, this is not easy to hear. When she was working in the in the camp or at Theresienstadt, I forget which, she'd been in a mica factory. But then she ends up her last job, and this is unbelievable. It's hard to even talk about. Her last job is they're taking the toys of the Jewish children, who I assume are already dead, and her job is to be one of the women that dismantles the toys to see if the Jewish prisoners hid valuables inside their children's toys. And then after they've done that, they reassemble the toys so that the toys can be shipped back to Germany for German children to have. I, I just, I don't even know. So that's what she was doing. And her supervisor, who was a Jewish supervisor, didn't like her, just took a dislike to her and reported her for some violation that wasn't entirely legit. And so the Nazis took her and whipped her with a cane and left scars all over her back and legs. Then she got typhus, okay, and malnutrition. In the miniseries, you know, I mean, it's not like they were going to tell poor Jane Seymour to make herself shrink down to a skeleton. That would have not been healthy at all, obviously. So they, you know, they make her up, and she looks suitably bad, yes. But in the mini, but in the novel, we are told that when Byron finally gets to visit her and finds her at the hospital in 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 Paris, he hugs her, and she's just bones. She's just skin and bones. Her backs and legs are covered in scars. She's skin and bones. Oh, and she's had numbers tattooed on her arm by the Nazis, obviously. And she's just a huddled little thing, shuffling along. Her Part of her memory is gone. And she, the way that she speaks to Byron is just 180 degrees different from how she... She was so cocky and brash and, and um, bratty, you know, when we first met her. And after everything she's gone through, she is a different human being. Of course she is. Of course she, she, why wouldn't, you know, of course she'd be a completely different person. And we see through Byron's eyes, he sees how she's changed and he's absolutely horrified. I mean, he, he loves her as much or more than ever, of course. And he's going to, he supports her and everything. And he spends his entire month of leave scouring Europe for their son and he finds him. Um, but, but he's just absolutely taken aback, to say the least, by how a different person she is 
when he finds her. And, um, and it's just remarkable, I think. I've always said that you know, the, the most important thing about most stories is the character transformation. It's how the main character or some of the main characters go from being one thing at the beginning to something else at the end. If characters don't change, then you're watching just an episodic drama where they fight this enemy or they do this action or whatever, and they're the same, you know, like a TV show. For it to be a real story, the characters have to live and grow and change and be different coming out the other end. And it's hard to imagine a character changing more. And, I, you know, I want to say growing. In some ways, it's growing. In some ways, it's just having been abused. I want you to think of, of just... You know, many of you are Game of Thrones. Of my listeners are Game of Thrones watchers, or, or watched it, or read the books. Think of what Sansa goes through. Okay, I think that's only a fraction comparable, not close. But it's you're in the right ballpark of what a young woman could go through and how it could change her. If you think about what George R. R. Martin did with Sansa, no, I'm not comparing that to the Holocaust. No, I'm not. I'm just saying. What he, what George R. R. Martin does with that character in, Ga- in Game of Thrones? Think of Sansa at the beginning. She's a princess, practically. Uh, you know, she's going to be the queen. She's going to marry Joffrey. She has all these dreams of you know everything that's going to be sunshine and rainbows. And then think of her midway through Game of Thrones, with all the horrible things that have happened to her and disillusioned her so badly, physically and mentally and emotionally, and then think of her at the end and who she's become, right? If you think about that kind of a character arc for a young woman who starts out brash and, and fresh and exciting and, and what it ends up doing to her, you, you're, you're in the ballpark of what I'm saying is, it happens with Natalie here, where she starts out that way and ends up in such a dark place, but she doesn't end up like Sansa yet. We don't know. She could. We don't know. You know, the, the story ends us there. We don't know that she ends up a powerful, stronger character, but you have to believe if Natalie has survived this far and she still has Byron and they found Lewis and they're back together, that once she gets her strength back, what she's gone through will make her, uh, you know, a, a, a strong, resilient person if it hasn't broken her and my gosh what she goes through it's i think it's it's either way i mean it's 50-50 we don't know the story ends us there we have to decide for ourselves what becomes of byron and and natalie and and lewis but my goodness i it's absolutely it makes my heart break over and over to think about it it's haunted me i i can't get it out of my mind her character at the end of at the end of that story and i think it's really remarkable so that's the, the main character I want to talk about was Natalie and Professor Jastrow. The, oh, the other thing I did want to mention in a slightly less dark note, though, is that some of the, some of the observations that, that Herman Woke has um, General Von Roon make along the course of the story are actually very fascinating because he has a completely different perspective, obviously, on the war than an American would. He looks at it as the Nazis were trying to defeat Soviet communism, and and, and he kind of backs up Hitler's view that the, the biggest threat to Western civilization was Soviet communism, and, and Hitler, every all the Western countries should have supported Nazi Germany in, a, in attacking the Soviet Union. And while I can understand that perspective in a way, because certainly we spend 45 more years dealing with the Soviet Union once the Nazis are defeated, that doesn't address in any way the Holocaust and the horrible things the Nazis were doing. I mean, I'm hard-pressed to think of what the, what the Soviets could have done to Europe that would have been any worse than what the Nazis did. I'm not saying that the Soviets would have been better. I'm just not sure how they would have been any worse. I think it would have been about the same, honestly, in a lot of ways. Uh, they're both mass murdering, dictatorial, bloody regimes that, that needed to go. But that I say that as they say to say this, which is that von Roon made one interesting observation that I thought was fascinating that he considered World War II to be the war of British succession. And by that he means the British Empire had ruled the world for a couple hundred years at this point, but they were clearly in decline. And, the, and it was a battle to see what country would rise up and take over and be the new superpower replacing the British Empire. And the contestants, as he sees it, were basically the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany 
and the United States and maybe Japan were the ones that had a real chance to take up that mantle. And he thought that Germany was basically fighting for their right to be the winners of the War of British Succession. And he basically says that the mastermind of the war was not Hitler, but FDR. In other words, von Roon makes this fascinating argument that FDR basically engineered the war so that the Soviets and the, and the Nazis would take each other out. And then all America had to do was beat Japan, mop up the Germans, and uh, rule the world. And if you look around the world today, you, you kind of have a hard time <laughs> arguing with that. Now, I, he, Herman Woke wrote that, so he lays down this Nazi view of it. And then he has Victor Henry come back and say, oh, that's poppycock, you know, that's BS, no way, no way. We were saving the world. We were trying to protect the world and all that. And I think that's the truth, obviously. But I just found that perspective interesting, no matter how right or wrong it might be. And I think it's mostly wrong. But there, there are elements, I, I mean, in, not in terms of motive necessarily, as I don't think, but in terms of how it played out, it's hard to argue that that's not what happened. Right? The, the Germans and the Russians broke their armies on each other, and then we defeated the Japanese and just held the Russians down until their system failed, as it was inevitable, you know, with their horrible system. And that left us top dog and the United States. And so, uh, whether that was deliberate or not, it certainly was the ultimate effect that the United States won the War of British Succession. So I thought that was a fascinating look at, uh, at history from a different perspective there. So there's, there's obviously lots of other things we could talk about. I do recommend both the books and the miniseries, miniseries, but I think that's probably enough. My voice won't last much longer. All right, gang, www.plexico.net. Um, the rocket's going to get on out of here for another episode, and we will see you guys down the road. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.